Taxes are not raised to carry on wars, but rather wars are raised to carry on taxes. War is the art of conquering at home. Well, the British government did their best to smear me with accusations that I was a, a debt-ridden wife-beater, callous to my parents, and known to engage in carnal relations with my maiden wife and a cat. Wow! <laughs> Anton Karras. I like to mention him because uh, I love that movie so much and um, it was a remarkable uh, usage of uh, somebody that uh, Sir Carol Reed found in uh, Vienna during the uh, filming of The Third Man, uh, Anton Karras. You can get all of his uh, Ziddler music, just look for it online and get the full uh, score. Uh, and uh, at the very top was uh, Ian Ruskin playing Tom Payne uh, in a film that was part of the trailer, actually, uh, in which uh, Payne uh, expounds about slavery much more in the film than in uh, the trailer, uh, because he was an ardent uh, abolitionist way ahead of his time. And we are continuing here alive on the fly and a variation of Assange Countdown to Freedom uh, on the the great whistleblower, uh, as you will uh, hear today, and uh, revolutionary journalist, uh, and a persecuted uh, journalist. Sound familiar? That, of course, is Tom Payne. This is the third of our four-part series on uh, Tom Payne with the uh, historian uh, Harvey Kay, uh, who really is a very colorful and dynamic and charismatic professor at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. So um, we're going to talk to him today. We're moving forward to talk about uh, rights of man, a little bit about agrarian uh, justice, uh, you know, his uh, uh, very bad situation in both England and in France at one point. Uh, so we're going to play this Tom Paine's Bones uh, and this is by the she, I believe, okay? If not, yes, it is the she. We'll be right back uh, with my uh, now dear buddy, and Kelly Lane, who's the engineer down there in North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, uh, who's the engineer and uh, editor. She's doing it all right now. Okay, uh, we'll be right back with um, Professor Harvey Kay. As I went out one evening by a river discontent, I bumped straight into old Tom Payne as running down the road he went. He said, I can't stop right now, child. King George is after me. He'd have a rope around my throat and hang me on a liberty tree. And I will dance the Tom Payne's bones, dance the Tom Payne's bones, now dance in the oldest boots I own to the river. Talked about freedom and just. 
another version of uh, Tom Paine's Bones. We're going to find out the uh, genesis of that tune uh, shortly. Uh, but uh, this is, by the way, Randy Critical, Randy Critical, Live on the Fly. And we are continuing our four-part series on my hero and I think Professor K's hero, uh, Tom Payne, uh, as we go into this 4th of July celebration. And uh, I don't see any mention of his name except for from this gentleman. And great to have you back, uh, Professor Kane. Thank you. This is a new experience for me, being interviewed by a man in a car. Yeah, well, I explained what happened, what, where I am. I'm on the road, and um, I'm gallivanting around the state. Came back to Albany, looking at the state capitol. Uh, had a lot of friends up here. So we're doing, this is a, a road show, okay? I'm like Anthony. Yeah, that's Bourdain. okay. I've done the interview from, I've been interviewed when I'm in the car, but this is the new one to me. Right. All right, so that's why we called the show Live on the Fly. Uh, and uh, Kelly Lane, by the way, uh, is, is the uh, producer, engineer, editor. Uh, she's out of North Carolina. Uh, and uh, Harvey, you've gotten to know her uh, over the course of the last week. She's doing a fabulous job, isn't she? Absolutely, given your in the Northeast. And she's really enjoying she's this show. What's that? You're up, you're, up, you're up in the Northeast somewhere. I'm out in the mid, upper Midwest, and Kelly's down in North Carolina. A real American enterprise. Wow, it's some triangle, right? I'm in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, so, Harvey, this is the third, and I know, I'm hoping that I can get everything I want to talk about on Twain within four one-hour shows. Pain. You get, huh? It's pain, not Twain. Did I say Twain? Yes, you do You don't that even have to cut that out. Just keep that in there because I'm also a Twain freak uh, on Thomas Paine, everything on Thomas Paine. And, you know, you definitely rekindled my, my obsession with him, uh, with the book we've been uh, talking about for the past uh, three shows. And it was already there, but you really, like, you know, gave it a lot of gas. Why is it that I am, do you think, I am so obsessed with paying tribute uh, to Paine uh, it, you know, with so much excitement. What is it about pain? Why him? It's because he actually does believe not only, not only that we have it in our power to begin the world over again, but he also believes that the greatest threat to freedom, equality, and democracy is concentrated power and authority, whether it's political, economic, or religious, cultural. That's it. Nothing to add to that. That's, well, that's I think, I think that's pretty good. I mean, we talked about, you know, we've talked so far about his role in the American Revolution. We've basically, we're on the verge of, of coming back to him on the verge of the French Revolution. And as he once, I think he wrote in a letter to Washington one time, something like, involvement in two revolutions is living to some purpose. Exactly. You know who said that? Something like that was, uh, I think it was Goethe uh, during the Battle of Balmy uh, in the French Revolution. We'll talk about that possibly later on uh, because he saw a few of those. Uh, but um, no, battles. Back, no battles, we're gonna talk ideas. Yes, it's ideas. And, 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 but there's something special about this man's character. His contribution, there's, he's so charismatic a figure 
uh, that it's it just it it defies gravity that he's not better known. I know he's had a lot of influence, but he's not on the tip of most people's tongues, particularly this weekend as we go into the revolution, uh, the anniversary. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's quite amazing. But don't forget, ever since the revolution itself, those with power and property and prestige have done everything they can, basically, to suppress or at least dump all over Thomas Paine's memory. Right. So we left this, um, the last episode two, uh, we were right at the end of uh, the first first issue of Rights of Man, which I guess is a two-part book, or is it two books uh, separate? It's two, it's two pamphlets. They're lengthy, so we might well call them books. And today, if one goes out to, to buy it, you'll, you'll find them in one book edition. But the thing, but they are somewhat different. They, they both sustain the idea of rights of man, but in the first, in the first uh, volume, we'll call it, Paine is writing basically with the American Revolution as his spirit, as his motivation, as he's defending the French Revolution of 1789 and, and, and in the two years since 1789 against attacks by Edmund Burke, the Anglo-Irish member of parliament, conservative, politically a conservative. And he wrote reflections on the revolution in France because he was so horrified at developments in France and he was afraid that the revolution in France might lead to a revolution in Great Britain. So that came out, it was a hugely successful publication not necessarily on the scale that Payne's work became, but it was hugely successful. Now, what's interesting around this time is that Burke wasn't completely crazy because in fact, movements did develop and were already, in fact, they had already emerged by the time his book came out, demanding a greater voice by middle-class and working-class people who were pretty much marginalized you know, to politics in the street. And they were now demanding a right to vote and a right to be more directly engaged in politics. So, and Paine reads reflections on the revolution in France and he's not the only one who responded to it. But Paine's response titled Rights of Man is really, really though it's a defense of the French revolution and he connects it, he links it to the American revolution. He sees it as this great opportunity now in Europe to begin a process of creating republics, of bringing an end to monarchies and aristocracies. And it's a really, I mean, it's a truly remarkable pamphlet. It is, in many ways, seems like an echo at points of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, you know, the pamphlet that, that launched the American Revolution or turned the rebellion into a revolution. But it is also the case that, that it takes off as just like uh, common sense, but in this case in Europe, it really takes off. It becomes a phenomenally important uh, pamphlet. And it, it's res the response it had was, you know, universal almost across Europe. And it really does give the English reform movement, the, the struggles from below, uh, uh, if you like, a manifesto, a manifesto. And so in some ways, 
the beginnings of the British labor movement as a serious movement and the beginnings of an, of an English effort to create a democratic Britain is, is really Paine's, are Paine's words that are inspiring it to, to, to act, to move as it did, to, to proceed as it did. What was the response of the British monarchy in the, in the House of Commons, the House of Lords, uh, you know, the government, uh, you know, to uh, Paine's? Well, uh, generally first... outrage and anxiety. And we should also realize that they had, they had spies. They had spies. And Paine surely while he was, well, I'm sure people, there were spies in France as well. So when Paine was in France, they might well have reported on his his whereabouts and his doings, but when he's in England, decidedly they were they 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 were spies. In fact, every one of the of the groups that were organizing in favor of some kind of democratic politics, small d democratic politics, usually had spies within their ranks. But it's also curious that the spies would report back to the authorities and often exaggerate the power of the movement. Why would they do that? You might wonder, well, as long as the king and his, as long as the crown's government, as long as the British government was worried about these movements for democracy, they were gonna to continue to pay the spy. So, I see. Okay, it is the case. The movement was widespread and very active, but we don't, I don't know if we could ever give a number to it because the exaggerated accounts that the spies themselves offered. So there were a lot of spies in Paris at the time. Is, is that spies where- Spies in Paris and spies in England. But, but Paine wrote that in Paris or in England? He probably, he was going back and forth. So I don't know where he was specifically. Remember, he's trying, he was, at, when he's back in Europe, he didn't go back for political reasons. He went back in order to gain funding and support for his idea of building an iron bridge in Philadelphia. And he couldn't get the monies in Philadelphia, so Franklin encouraged him to go to Europe and find support, endorsements, and money in London and Paris. And was he? Did he? Did he ever realize that dream? Was that Iron Bridge ever built? He built a quarter-sized model, which was opened up and sort of you could buy a ticket and 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 see it and perhaps cross over it. It may have been over a stream of some sort, but he never ever did realize the full bridge. There were other people working on iron bridges. And in fact, the first major iron bridge was built in, I think, Telford, I could be wrong, in, in England. I think in the Smithsonian in Washington, DC, there's an area, a technology area. And I think there's a reference to pain there because, his, because the bridge was itself in, inspiring of other people's efforts to build the bridge. I want to get back to rights a man for a second. Yeah, please. Um, let's let's we don't I, need I, to talk I want to about talk about his call for a social safety net. Uh, could you like uh, delineate uh, some of the things he was uh, calling for? Uh, well, here's the thing. I mean, that's really in the second part of rights of man, which we should move on to. The first part is really all again about whether or not a monarchy is a is a, is a decent form of government. And Payne obviously says absolutely not. In the second parts of Rights of Man, he's moved beyond specifically the attack on monarchy, and he's all the more now concerned about if we get rid of the monarchy, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Not simply because it would provide for a more Republican, small d, democratic kind of politics. It also would free up vast resources 
that could be applied to, to, a, to addressing the poverty that was so prevalent in England. So, you know, they were going to set up, a, instead of a poorhouse, they would set up, you know, employment bureaus, that kind of thing. It was all the kind of basic things you would expect in any kind of decent society that wanted to address poverty. And there was also the beginnings, Payne begins to speak in terms of money support for people who need it. It's not a full-blown model of social security yet. That he's going to raise in another pamphlet a few years later titled Agrarian Justice. But this is the time between Rights of Man 2 and later in Agrarian Justice where Payne moves beyond the idea of political democracy, which he's been so, fund his own work is so fundamental to, to inspiring and propelling movements in favor of it. He, but in... But in Rights of Man too, and then later in Agrarian Justice, he becomes the pioneering social democrat. That is, that, go that government is, is not simply to, to uh, oppress people as under a monarchy, but it can actually be used to truly enhance people's lives. Did, did he continue uh, during that period of time um, criticizing the institution of slavery? Uh, he, he didn't because he's now in Europe. Okay, and his first attention had, was first the bridge and then the question of monarchy, now that he's back there. However, he, he's, got a, he's carrying out correspondence with, with Americans back, you know, back in the, in, the, in the United States. And at various times, like one in particular always strikes, always uh, stands out in my mind, where he's, I think it's with the then mayor of Philadelphia, whose name I don't remember, it doesn't matter. And they're talking about slavery and what could be done. And I believe Payne had suggested that educated Northern black men, young black men be sent into the South as a way perhaps of organizing and mobilizing. I mean, there is in Payne's sense, in Payne's mind seems to be a sense that it might well require the struggle on the part of slaves as well as anyone else who would oppose slavery. Pennsylvania was really, I don't want to drift off to Pennsylvania, but in regards to slavery, they were the most enlightened of the 13 colonies, wouldn't you say? Yeah, of the 13 colonies, yeah, that, that, that would be the case. All of Massachusetts had some very interesting developments. Uh, there were uh, quite a few folks in Massachusetts, African-Americans themselves, who were petitioning for an end of slavery. I mean, it's pretty clear at this time in the wake of the American Revolution that slavery in the North is doomed. There are already major initiatives. It's going to be doomed. It may not end as quickly as, as black Americans would like, as slaves in particular, but, but it's doomed at this point. Right. John Jay took a long time. He did sign a bill in, uh, at the end of his uh, term as governor, uh, but it was graduated in up to 1827, where he actually got rid of slavery yeah. in its totality. But let's go back to rights of man. The uh, reaction in the second uh, volume was explosive uh, in the revolutionary uh, France. Yeah, I mean, it was all the more clear, I mean, especially as Payne is already talking in the second volume about, think of all the things we can do if the, if the royal government it, it comes to an end. So the, the, the spying on Payne, the harassment of Payne increases. And uh, Payne is, the government decides to arrest Thomas Payne. They, they decide to arrest him. And it's interesting, the story of his near arrest. So he's in a gathering and William Blake, the, the, 
the man who becomes this great English poet, is there. And Blake has, has heard that the authorities are coming to get him. And Payne quickly abandons London and makes his way quickly to the south coast to get on board a boat to take him over to Calais in France. And once he's, and, and he's really astonished when he gets off the boat in France. I mean, he's disheveled. I mean, he, he, you know, he, he brought so, so little with him. Um, people actually spoke of the fact that he came off the boat disheveled and probably smelled quite a bit. But that's not the point. The point is when he does get off, it's a huge celebration to welcome him. Calais has turned out as if it's a festival because they hear they're going to welcome this revolutionary Democrat, small d Democrat, revolutionary Republican, Thomas Paine. And Paine by this time, without even knowing it, has been basically accorded honorary citizenship in France and award, you know, awarded, given a seat in the National Assembly where basically the French representation will discuss what do we do next with the revolution. He must have known something was going to happen in, in, uh, in London to him. Uh, there were pamphlets, uh, books, and articles written smearing him, calling him a drunk and all sorts of other... Uh, yeah, yeah, some really findings. awful... Right, some real amazing, amazing lies to try to portray him in an utterly, utterly disgusting fashion, yeah. There were hired pens to do that, right? There were those... Oh, yeah, there are plenty of people who would be happy to make money writing you know, the, the most libelous and filthy stuff. Yeah, they're more easily done, as there are today. We know that. So, so now he's in Paris. We talked about this the last time, I believe. You've got uh, Governor Morris, who's the U.S. representative uh, to revolutionary France. Uh, and, of course, he doesn't like him because he had exposed the scandal of the loans that... Uh, right, so, not, yeah, 16. well, what happened was that paid... So Governor Morris was a very, very elite, wealthy lawyer and merchant who traveled back and forth regularly between New York and Philadelphia on business and political affairs. And Governor Morris had already come to the conclusion that Payne was, was a, you know, was not somebody near who deserved his, his, uh, his association. What really drove it home, as you were saying, is that Payne during the revolution, when he was serving in the American government, exposed, he served as a whistleblower, Thomas Paine. He was in charge of the Committee on Foreign Affairs, the secretary of the Committee on Foreign Affairs. And he realized that Silas Dean, who was trying to negotiate things secretly with France, was also trying to, you know, put money in his own pocket and take advantage of his public uh, official role. So he exposed it, Thomas Paine, and he outraged Silas Dean's friends, who included Governor Morris. So Morris is now the ambassador to France when Payne is there. And the, the Jacobins, the Jacobins, I mean, Payne is, is a member of parliament, but Payne opposed the execution of the king. And the Jacobins are determined to, to carry out revenge on him. And, and indeed, they have him arrested and they throw him in prison. And while he's there, he becomes terribly ill, terribly ill. And there's a possibility that he's, that he's going to die, not simply because of his health, but also because they've set the order of his, for, his, for his going to the guillotine. So there he is. You want me to tell that story about how he survived? Well, you can do it in short order here. Yeah, I mean, he is, he's in a cell in, in the Luxembourg Hotel, which was turned into a prison. 
with two other gentlemen from Denmark or Belgium, I forget. The point was that the exit is that these two men convinced the guards to allow the, the one of the two doors to the cell to be left open. The inner door was actually like a cell door. The outer door was a, was a complete wooden door. And they convinced the guard to leave the door open so that air could come into their cell because pain was so feverish. In the course of that night, the executioner's representative came around and marked the doors of those to be executed. And he marked the wrong side of the door on Payne's cell. So the next morning when they came to collect those to be guillotined, they went right by what happened was the door now was closed. And indeed, Payne survives by some kind of, uh, call it a miracle if you like. And, but he had tried to get out of jail, not by escaping, but he had demanded the French release him because he said, look, I'm an American citizen. You can't hold me on these kinds of, on any charges, basically, of a political sort. And the French government, you know, they asked Gouverneur Morris, the Jacobin said, well, what do we, what do you say? Is he an, an American citizen? And Gouverneur Morris actually said that he was a British citizen, a British subject, in fact, not an American. So Gouverneur Morris turned his back on Thomas Paine. Well, fortunately for Payne, Morris is recalled back to the American, back to the, not the American States, the United States, and he's replaced by James Monroe. And James Monroe had always idolized Thomas Paine as a very young man. And when he arrives in Paris, he immediately makes efforts to get Payne released, and eventually he succeeds. And he has, and he invites Payne to live in his ambassador, his, you know, in in the house that he and his wife were occupying. And while there. While there, of course, Paine takes up his pen again. He writes about the revolution. He also writes a long open letter to George Washington. And this is a letter that it has, is viewed by Federalists back in the United States, by the conservatives, as just like a major, major political sin. How could Paine say this? Paine believed, because Governor Morris had turned him down to try and help him out, that Washington had failed him, that Washington had turned his back on Thomas Paine. So Paine is convinced, having been abandoned by Washington, he should get his own revenge with a pen. And he then starts, he writes in this letter of how poor a general Washington really was during the revolution. I mean, it's a really, it's a nasty letter about Washington's military leadership. Um, and it's published back in Philadelphia. It's published, and it, it becomes this big scandalous moment in American public letters in, in Philadelphia. So Payne is already despised by the Federalists, but this adds to their animosity, really does add to their animosity. Anyhow, Payne doesn't come back to the state so quickly, he stays on. Now, he's writing, and there are two important works that, that he's also written during this stretch, before, during, and after he's in fr after prison. The first is Age of Reason, which becomes a two-volume, two-pamphlet set in which Paine criticizes organized religion. He goes after the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He criticizes all organized religion as, as a bundle of lies, and also that basically it, it, it becomes a, a, an institution in which priests or, or ministers or clerics, whatever, take advantage of people and live off of people, not unlike aristocrats were living off 
of peasants. So, but Paine is not simply offering a critique in these two pamphlets. He also offers a vision. He puts into writing what you would call militant deism, which is a belief in God, but a denial, a denial that God in any way intervenes at any time any longer. That, there, that if God was perfect, then his creation would be perfect, and God was off in the universe expanding, creating more of the universe. And wow. by the way, all of the founders, the notable founders, not all of the founders, but the most notable founders like Washington and Adams and Jefferson and Franklin, especially Franklin and, and, and Jefferson, were deists. They were not Christians. And in fact, um, Michael Novak, who was a major figure on the right for many years, passed away a few years ago, he wrote a book about Washington. And when he and I met, and we, and we met and became friends actually, surprisingly, he actually told me how much he loved my book because number one, it reminded everyone that Paine was a deist and not an atheist. And two, the fact that I did not misrepresent Washington as somehow, you know, an, an atheist either, but that in fact, the whole crew of them were in many ways deists. But Washington and Adams were not militant deists. They just had their beliefs. They, they continued to attend Christian services, but their sense of, you know, their spiritual sense was pretty much a deist sense of, of well, the universe. You know, I gotta tell you something, the most, that's all fascinating but I am uh, a little dumbstruck that uh, you were actually friends with Michael Novak. It almost yeah, well, is like friends with Roger Stone. Yeah, well, I'll tell you how it happened. So when my book that, you're, that you like so much, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, okay, when that came out, I was invited to go on C-SPAN on the one-to-one -one interview on they do on Sunday nights. And when I went on, the rule was that if you were on the left, they brought in someone from the right to interview you. And I remember thinking, who the hell are they going to bring in? And then they told me Michael Novak, and I actually got very unsettled because I thought, oh, I don't want to talk about religion. I want to talk about democracy. But then Michael Novak walked into the green room where I was, and he he was exuberant about how happy he was to meet me because he so loved my book on Thomas Paine. And when we actually did the interview, it was, I mean, it was, it was quite enjoyable. And afterward, he said, we should continue the conversation. And so the following year, I had him come out to Green Bay to speak, meet my students. And, um, you know, I mean, I can tell you, it was a very, very curious kind of thing. And then later, we stayed in touch and I visited him down at this very conservative Catholic university where he was living in retirement in Florida. He kept trying to tell me I should come and teach at the Catholic university, but that wasn't going to be the case. So. Well, listen, um, I hope you it's can not... give me, get me the link to that interview because I want to watch it. And right now, uh, we're going to continue with the uh, Age of Reason, agrarian reform, uh, his return uh, to America uh, via Thomas Jefferson's letter. Uh, when we come back after this uh, short musical break. In 1776, Tom Paine was writing books with might and main. A Tory said, now man alive, stop giving out with this hillibity jive. Stop giving out with this hillibity jive. Don't sing out people's rights that way. They might believe in what you say. So stop your song, it's not polite. Pipe down, 
before you start a fight. You don't say teacher, is that right? Ah, uh-huh, but Tom Payne looked ahead, and to those Tories Thomas said, No, 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 when you got to go, you got to go. You can't stand still on freedom's track if you don't go forward, you go back. Status quo. I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico live on the fly. And uh, we continue our discussion with uh, Professor Harvey Kay uh, on Thomas Paine. This is our third part of the four part series. Uh, so we were talking about um, the end of rights of man and him coming, uh, being invited back to the U.S. He's rescued by Monroe. He writes this letter. Uh, and then what happens, uh, Professor? Okay, well, the, the, the next thing of real importance when we talk about Thomas Paine is his pamphlet, Agrarian Justice. Because when Paine returned to Europe from the United States in, in um, you know, before the French Revolution, two years before the French Revolution actually breaks out, what's interesting to Paine, what, what shocks Paine is he, he seemed to have forgotten just how much poverty there was in England and also in France. And it was on his mind, what can we do? What can, one, what, can, what can humanity do about poverty? Now, he's always generally supported the idea of free markets because he believes that free markets allow for human contact and connection, not only within communities, but across vast spaces. But he's come to see what he calls civilization as too often becoming a matter of those who have and those who have not. And, and he says, it, we need to come up with a plan. Look, as he put it, God created the universe for all to share. And he said that there are those who come to monopolize the greatest source of wealth, which is landholding. And he says, those people who now monopolize the land owe the rest of us a payment, a tax, you know? And so he says, what we need to do is we need to enact a tax on the landed rich. And the monies that would, the monies that would be paid would be paid into a fund. And that fund would be distributed to young people and the elderly to combat poverty. Now, it would be distributed to young people on the age of maturity, say 21 years of age it might have been. And everyone under the age of 21 was to receive a payment to give them a start in life. Now it's notable, and this is the proof that Paine was more of a feminist than many are willing to, to, to acknowledge. He didn't think that the money should just go to young men. He wanted the money to go equally to young men and to young women to enable them to get a start in life. You can't get much more feminist in the late 18th century than to argue for that kind of economic or social democracy for both men and women. Then he said the other portion of the, for the larger, you know, the other half of the fund would be devoted to what we might think of as old age pensions. So perhaps at the age of reaching 50 or 55 or 60, those who had worked all their lives should now be able to step out of work and receive this money as a payment 
what we would call social security. So Payne is the godfather of social security. He's the, is the, or if you like, the father of social security in some ways. He's the person who envisions this kind of social democratic initiative to combat poverty. Because who are the ones who suffer poverty the worst? Young people and the elderly. And he wanted to make sure that poverty was addressed and, and, and defeated. So agrarian justice. And to this day, if you go to the, I believe to the social security website, even here in the United States, unless the Trump people have pretty much expunged any history from it, you will see that Thomas Paine is recognized as the prophet of social security by, by the US uh, Social Security Agency administration. So there you go. I mean, there's Paine in the late, late 1790s. He's still writing in such a way as to make history so that even though there will be no social democracy or social security for a century or more. The fact is he's a visionary when it comes to how to make sure, how to make sure that inequality does not destroy the democratic republics that he favors, okay? In 1800, in 1800 Thomas Jefferson wins the election to the presidency of the United States, okay? And Jefferson invites Paine now to return to the United States. Paine is hesitant. He's afraid that if he's on board a ship bound for the United States, that the British will somehow capture the ship and drag him back to England and, and you know, imprison him or worse. But he does decide eventually. Jefferson even offered an American warship as, as a way of bringing Paine home. He doesn't take him up on the offer. But and I think it's 1802, Payne decides he's coming back to the United States. And he returns to the New York area, not to Philadelphia, he returns to the New York area, and he, he takes up residence at a cottage in New Rochelle, New York, um, which unfortunately for him, New Rochelle was where a lot of Huguenot, Huguenot, the old French Protestants had settled, who were actually rather loyalistic during the revolution, and they viewed Thomas Paine in many ways in the worst light because he was the cause of turning the rebellion into a war for independence. But the, the Huguenots are, are really angry with him even now after all these years about the revolution. And they deny him the right to vote in New Rochelle. So he's, anyhow, I mean, he, he nothing, not much he can do about it, but he's traveling back and forth between New Rochelle and Manhattan. Um, eventually he does move down to Manhattan and settles in Greenwich Village. Um, a, a family that he knew in Paris, a, a, a very you know, radical family had moved to America, the, bon, the Bonnevilles, I think they were called. Um, and Madame de Bonneville, she basically serves as his housekeeper and nurse uh, for a while. But I'm leaving out something very important. And that is, Payne never lost his sense of humor. This is really important. He wrote, a few letters to the citizens of the United States back soon after his return to the United States. And Federalists, you know, the likes of Ad the folks who had followed politically Adams and Hamilton, those folks, the conservatives of their day, they hated Thomas Paine and they made every effort in newspapers and, and other means to curse him. Um, they cursed him because, number one, he was a radical Democrat. They cursed him, too, because 
because in the 1790s, while Paine was still in France, Rights of Man, those two pamphlets that came together into one book, inspired a movement in the United States called the, the Democratic Societies or Democratic Republican Societies. They thought that the Federalists threatened their freedom, that the Federalists had ambitions to create something of an aristocracy. Look, I mean, Alexander Hamilton made it pretty clear by, 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 by words and actions that he was prepared to cultivate in this country a commercial merchant capitalist class in order to, as the means to develop the United States economically. So these democratic Republican societies that emerged not only in the cities of the East, but even out in the Western part, in the, in the territories out to the West, you know, that would become Kentucky and, and areas like that, they would gather and they would literally toast Thomas Paine. And what, basically they provide the basis, these, these, this movement, these groups, for what will later be the making of the Jeffersonian Democratic uh, Party, then known as the Republican Party. We shouldn't confuse terms. So the Democratic Republicans become Thomas Jefferson's political base. So when he wins election in 1800, this is viewed in many ways as a break. I know he's a slaveholder and not apologizing for that at all. But for many people, this was a breakthrough in favor of taking back America from conservatives who were who seemed to be prepared to turn America into more like, you know, some kind of English society again. So here's the thing. He writes these letters, Thomas Paine, these letter, open letters to the citizens of the United States that are published. And in them, he says, he says, you know, the Federalists think that they're the ones who are really calling for American unity. But I called for American unity before they ever did, back in the time of the revolution. And he was the one who actually laid out the first model of a constitution during that revolution. So Paine says, basically, the Federalists are latecomers to national unity. I'm the original kind. Of, and so it was his way of sort of taking like a, a stick and poking the Federalists, you know, saying, you're a latecomer to questions of national unity. And they were very entertaining letters, in fact. Okay, uh, well, that is fascinating. And that was a quick hour. Uh, we're going to end it there, and we'll talk about 1800, uh, Payne's last nine years of life, and his influence on our next uh, chat with the great professor from the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, and that, of course, is the historian Harvey K. Uh, we'll be right back with some closing remarks. Step up straight into old Tom Payne as I run on the road he went. Said I can't stop right now, child. King George is after me. Hang a rope around my throat and hang me on the lily tree. But I will dance to Tom Payne's bones. I'll dance to Tom Payne's bones. I'll dance in the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tom Payne's bones. I will dance to Tom Payne's bones. I hope you 
enjoyed the music and of course that uh, our third interview with Professor Harvey K on the life and times of the uh, radical revolutionary journalist and the true spirit of not a totally, not even close, uh, realized uh, revolution in this country. Uh, we uh, haven't really moved uh, forward that much, uh, in my opinion, since that time, but we got that far just because of uh, Payne's inspirational works. Uh, really was uh, a, a great uh, citizen of the world, I, I suggest. And uh, I'm Randy Critical. This is Randy Critical Live on the Fly uh, and a variation of Assange's Countdown to Freedom. Uh, we will be focusing more on Assange over the next uh, two and a half months as we go into the uh, second part of this farcical uh, hearing trial uh, that uh, is going on in uh, London at the behest of uh, Donald Trump and uh, William Barr. They want to squelch the free press, and this is a very bad example if they actually get it done. A very bad example here in the sense that it will just begin the rollover of the press. Uh, so, as I said, um, Kelly Lane is in uh, North Carolina. She does the editing and she does the, uh, the Zoom uh, recording and all of that. We have other people that are part of this. Uh, Sarah Kunstler, Emily Kunstler does uh, our website. And, um, and then Margaret Kunstler uh, does uh, the, uh, the write-ups for me. And uh, next week will be, um, next on the 7th, we'll be doing a special on William Kunstler, who was born on that day uh, 101 years ago, the great civil rights attorney, William Kunstler. If you'd like to support this show, and we would like to continue doing this all the way through the hearing, uh, please go to our website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. That's AssangeCountdownToFreedom. Make a small donation. Uh, but it really is critical at this point uh, if you want us to continue what we're doing. And I think what we're trying to do is, is humanize Assange uh, to this stupid American public that, uh, you know, you got the conservatives pissed off because of the war laws and exposing uh, government corruption. And uh, you got liberals who still think uh, he's responsible for Trump's win. Uh, and even if he was, uh, which he wasn't, uh, responsible for it. Uh, you do not want Julian Assange to be extradited to the U.S. Uh, it will be a very bad day in America if that were to happen. Kiss away the First Amendment if that were to happen. All right, we're going to play something special here. Um, this is um, uh, as we continue uh, the fight uh, uh, on behalf of uh, Black Lives Matter. We uh, certainly are uh, dedicated to that. Uh, this is a memorial to some of those who are victims of the police state. Uh, and this is the music of uh, Billie Holiday. It's called uh, Strange Fruit. See you soon. With what has happened, the last two centuries, uh, African-Americans gunned down by law enforcement, enslaved, uh, put to work, uh, convict leasing, put in jail with the drug war, but 
in the last week, it's really heated up and it's got to stop. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees Twisted mouth, scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Bitter. Cur-